0: Well, good morning, everyone. morning morning and welcome to Old Providence Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. What a wonderful thing it is to be with you this morning. And we are delighted that the Lord has brought you here to worship, whether this is your first time or your thousandth time or somewhere in between. I welcome you, especially those of you who may be brand new visitors that have never been here before. We are here to worship because jesus alone is worthy of our praise and honor and glory and worship we shall but first let me just make a few announcements the biggest announcement that i have today is that immediately following this worship service we're having an informational meeting okay it's not a congregational meeting it's an informational meeting about vacation bible school and i would encourage you to stay for that there are all sorts of wonderful opportunities to volunteer. But besides volunteering, there's all sorts of wonderful opportunities to participate in Vacation Bible School. So um, please stay tuned for that, and that'll be immediately after the service. In fact, what we're going to do is Amanda and I will swap. I'll say the benediction. She'll come down here. I'll I'll go up there, and uh, yeah, hopefully everything will work fine with that. But um, other things are going on, too. I want to just make note of, of what's in the bulletin there. Several things happening. Um, the regular stuff is going on. Youth group, Little Lands tonight, right? We have youth group. Also at 5 p.m. there is a deacons meeting. Monday midday is going on tomorrow. Um, another thing I'll make note of. In your bulletin, you'll see a write-up about Camp Joy. Camp Joy is a camp that our denomination puts on. It's in different states. It's all over the place. It started down in Bon Clark. There's a Camp Joy Um, South Carolina, Florida, Virginia now, and this is a camp for special needs campers. We are having an informational dinner, and that's this Friday at 6.30. It's free of charge. However, they would gladly accept your donations to support camp. Joy, but if you are interested, please let me know, and let me know by Wednesday so I can get you signed up for that. And feel free to call, email, whatever. But that is this coming Friday. Now. There are other things going on, but I'm going to let you find those in your bulletin. What a joy it is to be in the Lord's house together. I don't know about you. This is one of those days, one of those weekends, really. Uh, And I should say, too, thank you so much for your kind happy birthday wishes. I turned 42 years old on Friday. And did somebody just say, oh, who said that? (laughs) Oh, come on now. I feel older than 42 this weekend, because we've had a lot of things going on this past week. But as I remarked to the session earlier, now is the time that the Lord has given us where all the things that have been happening, the hustle, the bustle, we had the holiday last week, and all of those things, now we have the opportunity to stop, to stop, and to focus on the Lord, because it's the Lord that has brought us here. So let's do that now and prepare our hearts for worship as Donna leads us in the prelude. Thank you, Donna. Our call to worship this morning is found in Psalm 11, and it says, I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked strings bows, they put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, the psalmist asks a powerful question there, doesn't he? As you look at what's going on in the world around you, it would be very easy to conclude that the foundations are being destroyed, right? And yet the psalmist answers his question before we even have the chance. He writes in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. My friends, we get a simultaneous warning and promise there. The warning of judgment, but the promise that the Lord is indeed the great high judge. He sees, he knows, and he is active in our world today. What wonderful cause for worship do we have in these things? Now let's go to the Lord in prayer, after which we will pray the Lord's prayer together and then confess the Apostles' Creed. But let's go to him now. Our Father, we thank you that these words are true that you are seated on high in all of your majesty, that you see all things. We may be tempted to look at the world around us, a world that that when we think, oh, surely nothing else, something else happens. We scratch our heads, we wonder at the foolishness that we see, and we would be tempted to conclude that you're not there. That's what Satan wants us to believe, that you're not there. Or that you're not going to act. But Father, we know that your word is true. That you see. That you know. And that you are indeed active. Why, given the wickedness of the world, the fact that we have not turned the earth to glass, that, that we haven't consumed one another entirely, is evidence of your hand at work. So Father, give us grateful hearts in light of these things. As we come together in this time, Set apart to worship you. Let us focus on you. Let us remember the mighty things that you have done. And yet, the mighty things that you will do. Let us remember the joy of being the sons and daughters of God. And we pray it all in Christ's name. And we pray as he taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen indeed. And now as we say the Apostles' Creed together, let me ask you, Christian, you know, it's the season change, right? Maybe you caught the other night that we had our first thunderstorm of the, of the season. I don't know if you enjoy those like I do. I enjoy them a little bit less because I found out that the computer upstairs was zapped the other night. Amanda, there's a little cord that is plugged into the USB on the side of the black computer. If you plug it into the USB on the side of yours, then it should work with the clicker. And it's probably on the left-hand side of that black computer plugged in. Let's see here. Well, while we figure this out, it's always something. Let's see here. Test. It. Oh, all right, we're working. Fantastic. Let's stand together as we sing all creatures of our God and King. It's hymn number 100. Obviously, the words are on the screen. But well, Let's lift up our voices together. You may be seated except for children. Come down and join me at the front. Hey, buddy, come on down. It's good to. I'm happy to be back with you this morning because before Easter and breaks for things like wintry weather and so forth, we were focusing on different promises that God makes us in His Word. We've talked about how God promises to never leave us or forsake us. We we talked about God's promise to always provide for us, how God always gives us a way out when we're tempted. He promises to do that, right? We talked about how God promises that He never changes and how he promises to provide for us. But when we talked about that last one, how God promises to provide for us, we talked about this life, right? Now we never have to worry about, we, we read the passage where Jesus said, don't worry about the things that you wear, and we talked about how Jesus takes care of the birds and that sort of thing. But did you know that God promises to take care of you, not only in this life, but for all of eternity? That's right. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14. So many wonderful promises here. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You know what it means to have a troubled heart? Having a troubled heart can mean that you're sad. It can mean that you're worried. It can mean that you're disappointed, right? It can mean all sorts of different things. But Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he said this. He said, "In my father's house there are many mansions." Don't know what a mansion is? Yeah, a, man- a mansion is a big, gigantic houses, and we have several in America, right? I grew up going to the Biltmore House. Have y'all ever been to the Biltmore House? No. Have y'all ever been to Swananoa? That's not really a good example because it's a mansion that's fallen apart, but it's not too far from here. But a mansion is a great big house. And Jesus said, if this weren't so, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus said, that he's going to prepare a place for you. And then he says, if I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be also. And then he said, you know the place where I'm going. Now, next week, we're going to talk about that place a little bit more and what Jesus said to Thomas when doubting Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going or anything like that. But let's think about the promise that Jesus has made here, that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he prepares a place, he's going to take us to be with him. What a wonderful promise. Jesus has prepared a place for every single person who believes in him so that we will be with him forever. And where we will be with him is so important too. Jesus makes so many promises about what heaven is going to be like. That's what he's talking about there. The place that he's prepared for us is in heaven. And heaven is a place where there's no crying, where there's no hurt, there's no pain, there's no disappointment, there's no loss, there's no fear. Heaven is a place that we get to be with the ones that we love so much that have loved the Lord and have gone to be with him already. But ultimately, heaven is where we will be with God forever. What's important is for you and me to first believe in Jesus, right? He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. But it's also important that we remember to not let our hearts be troubled. You know, of all the promises that Jesus made to us, this one's wonderful because he says, when your hearts are troubled, when you're sad, when you're lonely, when you're upset, when you're disappointed, when you're all those things, Jesus tells us to remember to think about heaven. Heaven And how wonderful it's going to be there with him. And I hope that you guys will remember to do that. I hope that all of us will remember to do that as well. I think that we don't spend near enough time thinking about heaven. We really need to spend more time focusing on Jesus and his promises. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your kindness, for your goodness, for all of your promises, including this promise. That you will be with us always. That we will be with you always. That you prepared a place for us. Help these children to remember it. Help all of us to remember these things. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. And now as they are going, let us turn our attention to the Lord again in silent prayer. And then I will lead us in the pastoral prayer. But let's go to him now. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, with the words of your scriptures in our minds, fresh with the promise of your Son, still in our minds, let our focus, let our resolve, let our planning, and let our hope rest in you, in you alone, in you and all the promises of your word, in you and the reward that you promise us in glory forever, in you and in the promise of reunion with those that have gone on before us that have known and loved you. As your son and our savior said, let our chief desire be to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Not here, not now, not bending to the philosophies of the world, not trading our birthright, despising it as Esau despised his, but instead cherishing all of the covenant promises you've made to us in Christ, letting us be mindful of what we face, yes, going through life with wisdom, absolutely but keeping one eye on heaven at all times. For this life, as busy as it is, as involved as it is, as painful even as it can be, help us to remember that you have numbered our days. That This life is not all there is. And that, oh, it is short in the grand scheme of things. Father, in all of these, We recognize that in your glory and your majesty, you never leave us alone. You are always here with us to provide, to protect, to comfort, to direct and correct when needed because you love us. And yet, Father, in light of this, we cannot help but recognize those times when we wouldn't have it. We wouldn't have you on our own we would run after our own desires we would be much more concerned about our plans and devices instead of what is laid out in your word and if we have the wisdom to see it we'll see that we make a mess out of life when we forget about you and only focus on ourselves and yet this is our first inclination so forgive us father please Let us recognize those things that we need to take before you, those things that we need to turn over to your Holy Spirit to be dealt with so that we would have victory in Christ Jesus. We know that we have ultimate victory in you, and yet in this life we face so many losses when we refuse to turn to you. So work in our hearts to that end. As we face the challenges of this life, again, Give us wisdom. Give us correction where needed. And Father, please bring comfort to those who are struggling. Whether it is those that are mourning the loss of loved ones. We still think of those that have lost loved ones recently, like the Grubb family, like the shiftlets. Father, please give them a special measure of grace. Make them aware of your presence. And for others still that are mourning loss. We fool ourselves when we think that grief is linear that we have a start and we have an ending and then everything is fine. Life's not supposed to be that way. So for those that are struggling with grief, I pray that you would bring comfort and peace. For those that are struggling in other ways, physically perhaps, I pray that you would bring healing. For those that are struggling emotionally, I pray that you would bring encouragement. And for those who who may be facing multiple things, they don't even know where to start. Draw them to yourself, that they would start with you. For your grace alone is sufficient. We pray this for ourselves. We pray this for your church universal. That we would all be about your business, Father. As we are united together under one head who is Christ. Let us stand firm against false teaching. Let us press forward together. For the sake of the gospel. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Now, please stand with me as we continue our worship and take your Bible song books. The words, of course, are on the screen as we sing Bible song number 63, Safety and Strength in God. Please stand with me. Go to our Lord, indeed, Father, you have shown us marvelous kindness, and it is our desire that your name would be blessed forever and ever. We do this with our lives, we do this with our resources, our time, and even that which you have entrusted to us. So now, as we come to this moment where we return our tithes and offerings, I pray again that you would bless the gift, that you would bless the giver, that these would be used in accordance with your will and for your kingdom. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you very much, Choir. What a wonderful reminder. It's like I said earlier, we don't spend enough time thinking about heaven, but we also don't spend enough time thinking about that promise also that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what a day that will be. So thank you, Choir. Well, I'm excited about where we find ourselves today in God's word because I found that where we're going today is one of the least studied books in the New Testament, certainly, but the Bible as a whole. And there are reasons for this. One, I believe, is that this book is not written by one of the more well-known writers of the New Testament, like Paul or Peter or John. The fact is, is that we know very little, biographically speaking, about the author. Two, the subject matter of this book is not only uncomfortable at times, but it also contains one of the oddest, just craziest passages in all of the Bible that just kind of sort of takes us aback. Now we're not going to get there today, but we will. So that's one of the reasons I don't think this book is very studied. But third, in part because of this odd, crazy portion, a lot of pastors never preach from this book. I, I know that I have never preached from this book, though not from that for that reason. I, I've never heard a sermon on this book of the Bible. And fourth, as it was with 2nd and 3rd John. The book we come to today really is one of the shortest in all of the Bible. Now, uh, there are perhaps more good reasons, but these are four very good ones. Now, what book of the Bible am I referring to? Where are we going to be this week and next week? Right, It's a short book, but it'll still take us a couple of weeks to get through it. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Jude. Yes, Jude. And if you have a problem finding Jude, go to the end of your Bible. You'll find the book of Revelation Go to chapter 1 of Revelation and then look back, right? Because Jude is right before Revelation. I would tell you the chapter we're going to be in, but like I said, it's one of the shortest books in the Bible. There are no chapters, just verses. Um, But again, we're going to start in Jude and we'll start reading in verse 1. So the book of Jude, verse 1. Before we read anything, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and our Father, as we come to this, your word, and a portion of it that is not very well known, we pray that you would guide us, for in these short verses, there is such a relevant message for us today, it applies to us so much, let us not miss it, Though we only make our way a little bit into Jude today, we pray that you would guide us in it, again, let us see the validity of your word and how applicable it is. Guide us now by your Holy Spirit. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So Jude, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in stealth. They are ungodly. Turning the grace of our God into sensuality, sensuality, and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And we'll stop reading right there. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen and amen. Well, we have only made it five verses in, but I'd like to say this is very interesting thus far, right? Uh, Thus begins Jude, this little-known little book of the Bible. Let's talk about the who, what, when, and where of Jude, this book of the Bible that sadly goes unnoticed. Let's start with the who. We've read it already, and we know that the author begins by identifying himself in 1A there as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And so we know two things right off the bat. His name is Jude and we know his brother is James. But that's it, at least at surface level. And so in terms of identifying him on the surface level, we really don't have too much. After all, realize that Jude is simply the Hebrew version of Judas. And there are six, right, six notable Judases in the New Testament. Now, When we hear that name, one of them comes to mind first, right? And that's natural. That would be Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed our Lord, the son of perdition himself. Well, we know that the writer of Jude is not that Judas, right? We know that Judas Iscariot hanged himself shortly after betraying our Lord. We also know he wasn't a full follower of Christ, amongst other things. So who was Jude? Well, the fact that he identified himself as the brother of James is helpful because we know from the New Testament there's only one prominent James that he would possibly identify himself with. And that would be James, the writer of the book of James, but also James, the brother of Jesus. So who was Jude? Jude was Jesus' brother. That kind of raises another question though, doesn't it? Why didn't Jude just say he was Jesus's brother? Well, we don't know exactly, but the best guess is that it was out of reverence for Jesus and that Jude, like James, didn't want to elevate himself to some special status just because Jesus was his earthly brother. I think that's the best explanation for this. Moving on to the when, when was Jude written? Well, if this is Jude, the brother of Jesus, and it is, then we know that he would have been born in proximity to Jesus, right? So this book would have had to have been written in the first century. But also, we get the idea from one of Peter's epistles that Peter takes some of what Jude has written. So it's entirely likely that Jude was written in the early to mid-60s, okay, A.D., right? Somewhere close to that. Now, what about the where? Where was this written and to whom? Well, the answer to this question is that it was written to every Christian everywhere across all time. Why why do I say this? Well, we've read the second part of verse 2 where Jude reveals his audience by saying, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice what's there and what's not there. In other words, Jude was written to Christians everywhere across all time because there's no expiration date there in that verse, is there? He's not saying to the first century church. He's not saying to the first century church that happens to be located in Alexandria, that happens to be in Rome, that happens to be in Colossus. No, no, no. No, it's broad for a reason. It's written to all Christians everywhere across all time. And so you know what that means? (coughs) means it's written to you and me too. But to try to be a little more specific, Jude's audience in particular, his original audience, was probably a church or a group of churches he had planted or he had served. We assume that because in verse 3 he addresses them as friends. And this isn't just some broad thing. He, he really meant it there. So he's probably writing to Jews that had converted to Christianity. I say that too because of some of the content of his book right? He's going to talk about things as we go along that Jewish people would have known about. Gentiles would have had no idea what he was talking about, so he wouldn't have even written that to them. So that's just a little glimpse of who that original audience was. Now the big question. We've read the first few verses. What, what is this really all about? The beginning is odd, we have to admit. it. It starts differently than any other New Testament book, really. We've read the first part. After identifying himself as Jude, the brother of James, after revealing that he's writing this to all Christians everywhere, again, he writes, dear friends, and this is what's so fascinating about it. He says, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. What makes this interesting is that, that Jude said, "Hey, look, I was planning to write to you about the gospel, right This was going to be a theological treatise kind of book, right kind of like Paul wrote to the Romans about the contents of the gospel, the theology of the gospel that 's what Jude had in mind, but he never got there. Why? Well again, if you read what he says there, we find out that instead of writing." just about the Gospel, Jude had to write to address conflict and controversy. Y'all, there's significant problems going on with these original people that received this, and and not just any problems. They're problems that threaten the very core of what it means to be a Christian, the center of Christianity. And with that, we're, we're starting to get somewhere in answering this question, what is Jude really all about? Again, he wrote to address conflict and controversy. And just what is it? What is that conflict? What is that controversy? Well, if you look at verse 4, we've already read it, but he said he's writing this for some people. In other words, because some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now we're really getting somewhere. If you put two and two together here, you find out that Jude is talking here about people that have come into the church. They've come in stealthily. You know what it means to look like, to, to, to do something in a stealthy fashion. They look like they're supposed to look. At first, they sound like they're supposed to sound. We know that they must be involved either in leadership or preaching, something like that. Everything sounds right, but we found out that these people were designated for judgment. You know, this concept is not unique to Jude. In fact, I mentioned Judas Iscariot before. You remember what Jesus said about Judas Iscariot? He said, I've held on to all of them except for the son of perdition, the one that was destined for hell the son of hell himself. What Judas is talking about here is a church where people have come in, they've infiltrated the church by stealth, looking like they're supposed to look, sounding like they're supposed to sound, but they're not followers of Jesus. They're the disciples of hell itself. And the message that they have come with, oh, well, y'all, if you focus on this, it, it says it turns the grace of God into sensuality. He's talking about sexual immorality here. That's what he'll go on to talk about more as we continue. And denying Christ, our only master and Lord. These are the two things that are going on. These people have come in by stealth to promote sexual immorality and to flat out deny Jesus. They're doing it stealthily. But that's what they're really doing. Now, As a result of this, again, putting two and two together, we're, we're, we're zooming in more and more on the controversy, and we find out that Jude wrote to address false teachers and their teachings. And though we don't know specifically what these teachings are, they led to sexual immorality and to denying Christ. Now, let's stop and think for a moment. Okay, that's the overall introduction. We know that's what Jude is going to be doing for the rest of the book. He's exposed the false teachers and he said that their teaching leads to sexual immorality and denying Christ. Let me ask you, put your thinking caps on. Does this remind you maybe a little bit about any particular culture at any particular time? False teachers in the church, They promote sexual immorality. And not only that, they lead you to deny Christ. Think really, really hard. Oh, I know. This sounds a whole lot like today, doesn't it, in the United States? In case you can't tell, at the Clackamas United Church of Christ, they say that God loves you just the way she made you. And the connotation there, of course, is inclusivity. You know, of all the teachings, or all the false ideas concerning God's Word, the one that just not only upsets me, but just doesn't make any sense, there's this idea going on out there that God's Word doesn't apply to today. Y'all, can you think of anything that applies more to today than this? If you had to choose the two main issues that the church in the United States by and large faces, wouldn't it be these two? Think about what's going on around you. Is the church not advancing and promoting sexual immorality? And it's not just the homosexual, transgender, LGBTQ plus stuff. My goodness, y'all, we live in this time where nothing is scandalous anymore. We have terms like starter marriages. And when it comes to sexual immorality, people cohabitating, living together before marriage, nobody bats an eye. But that's the unspoken side of things. The vocal side of things that we hear that shoved down our throat in the modern church is to not only advocate for sexual perversion, but also to propagate and to advance it. If you don't believe me, consider the Methodist drag queen Miss Penny Cost doing children's sermons in Florida this past October. Children's sermons. This isn't even the church talking about. This is during church services, y'all. And the problems with this, I don't even know where to start. I don't want to climb up on some hobby horse about this. Again, you know, the question is not if children need to see drag queens. It's why do drag queens demand an audience of children, right? But that's what's going on. And so much of the visible church in the United States promotes this kind of thing. And along with it, so much of the church denies the basic teaching of Christ, that he's the only way, the only truth, the only life, that no man comes to the Father, no one comes to the Father but by him. And y'all, this is everywhere. These are the two main issues, right? Sexual immorality and denying Jesus. That is the church in the United States. All around you there are people who claim to be ministers of the gospel, yet they do not believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They don't believe he's the only means of salvation, the only source of forgiveness. And y'all, I'm not talking about New York or California or even Charlottesville or Richmond or Fairfax. I'm talking about Augusta County. I'm talking about Rockbridge County. Hey! Go on Lexington Presbyterian's website. You can go to the, to the session with the imam that they have on a quarterly basis. They have a Muslim cleric come in and teach on a quarterly basis in Lexington. This isn't just going on in, in, in wacky far left United States. No, this is in Spotswood. It's in Brownsburg. It's in Stanton. It's in Lexington. The two problems that Jude wrote to address, sexual immorality and denying Christ, are all around you. So let us do away with the notion that God's word is not relevant and not applicable to us today because very clearly it is. And because it is very clearly relevant to today, the point of Jude writing is very clearly evident too. Do you remember what he said in verse three? He's identified the problem, sexual immorality and denying Christ. But do you remember what he said in verse three? The appeal that he made He said, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. You know what appealing means? It means a strong request. He appeals to them. To what? To contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. What does he mean by this once-for-all business? He's talking about Jesus Christ. The way of salvation given once and for all. That is not up for debate. For there is no other Savior. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other way. And he's appealing to them. Jude wrote what we've read as an appeal. But forget about Jude. This is God's word. God appeals. God commands us to contend for the faith. And just like it is, those two issues couldn't be more relevant to today. This calling, this calling they got 2,000 years ago, it could not be more relevant for us today. The question is, how do we do it? How do we contend for the faith? Two things, right? The first one we'll really see today Second one as well, to a certain extent. But the first way that we contend for the faith is by remaining faithful ourselves. I'll say that again. You want to know the first way that you stand up for the faith? It's by being faithful. Look at verse 5. Jude wrote, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. You might say, anyway, oh, so that's an interesting verse, but realize this. In this reminder, because that's what Jude says this is at the beginning of verse 5, now I want to remind you, but in this reminder, Jude references what happened in the past with God's people, all right? Namely, that they had been delivered as a whole, but that God destroyed all those who didn't really believe. What Jude is doing here, if you're wondering, well, that's a curious verse, What he's doing here is he's drawing a parallel between the people that are reading this for the first time and the people of God from long ago. He's using ancient Israel as an illustration for the church. And if it worked 2,000 years ago, guess what? It works 2,000 years later today. Just like in ancient Israel, there were Israelites who were delivered and who were a part of the nation of Israel but didn't really believe, so it is with the church. I say this because when we speak of the church, we speak in terms of the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is everyone that comes to be a part of what happens at the church. Look around you right now, and this is the visible church. But what Jude is doing is drawing a line of distinction. He says there's the visible church. There's everybody that you see claiming to be a follower of Christ. But then he says there's the actual church, right? The invisible church that's made up of true believers, those who are really trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And just like it was with ancient Israel, God delivered all of those people. They were all part of the visible Israel, but they weren't all following God. Y'all, the reality is that's the way the church works too. I remember growing up as a kid, I went to a Christian school, small Christian school. My mom was a teacher there. That's the only way we could go. But I remember a chapel speaker coming in and I'll never forget his terminology and his, his example of this. He said, so you go to a Christian school. And, and we all said, well, yeah. He said, how many people go to church? You know, this is a time when to get into Christian schools, you actually had to go to church. There's a few of those still left. But nevertheless, you know, every, every kid raised their hand, yeah, yeah, yeah we, go to, we go to church. And he said, so you go to a Christian school, you go to a church. Does that make you a Christian? And we all just kind of looked around at each other. And he said, let me ask you something. If you walk into a garage, does that make you a car? He said, if you go to Burger King, does it make you a Whopper? I thought, well, eventually, but nevertheless, (laughs) yes. But in, in all actuality, the point that he was making was, just because you have affiliation with something doesn't mean you're a real part of it. What Jude is doing here with these people 2,000 years ago is he's saying, hey, listen up. Pay attention to what's going on around you. The church is made up of people that are here, visibly speaking, but just because they're here doesn't mean that they really know Jesus. That was the case 2,000 years ago. That's the case today. And as a result, the first way that we contend for the faith is by being faithful, not only for people on the outside to see, but for people on the inside to see. For you and I to testify to one another. Because the reality is this. God judges all those who do not really believe. That's the point that Jude is getting at here. And given in giving this reminder, Jude also gives the warning to make sure that your faith is genuine. And, and, and now because of this, to contend for the faith, we've kind of got things twisted here. Remaining faithful is absolutely necessary. But two should really be one, and one should really be alone. and in particular, your own personal relationship with him, your own faith affiliation, being in a room, saying that you can check things off on a list. That does not mean that you are a real follower of Christ, because we are saved. Salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. That's what Jude's really getting at. If you want to contend for the faith, make sure your faith is genuine. And this isn't the only reminder that he offered. He'd go on to offer more reminders in verses 6 and 7 that we're going to get to next week. We'll pick up where we left off. But for today, receive the challenge given by God in his word through Jude. Receive the challenge. God commands us to contend for the faith. And to do that, you've got to start at the start. Don't get bogged down in everything that's going on out there. It's easy to do that. Y'all, the news... We were never designed to have 24-hour news pumped into our eyeballs uh, through an 18-inch pipe constantly all day long to see every tragedy that's taken place. Start by examining yourself. Examine your own salvation to make sure that it's genuine. If it is, be faithful. Remember the calling to trust in Christ alone. And tell the truth of His word. that's where we'll continue next week. All of it, don't pick and choose. Examine whether or not you're following the Holy Spirit and what God has for you. And if you, in examining your faith, if you realize that you don't really have faith, turn to Jesus Christ today in repentance. Ask him to forgive your sins and save you, and He will. See me after, and we'll talk. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that your word is relevant, that we see by looking at the world around us that though technology has changed, though communication has changed, certainly, people haven't changed. There's all sorts of people masquerading as those that belong to you that don't know you at all. And as it was then with Jude, so it is now. We see a church, a visible church, riddled with sexual immorality and denying your son. Let us start at the start by examining ourselves first. And then, oh, Father, let us be faithful. Let us read your word, know your word, and follow your word, obeying and leaving the consequences to you, being assured of your presence with us. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's close by taking our hymnals and we'll sing all four verses of Fairest Lord Jesus, number 135, Fairest Lord Jesus. Please stand with me as we sing. And I'd welcome you all to stay after the choral response just remain seated and uh, we'll have our short short meeting together receive the benediction may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore